Hello and welcome to the podcast for the April 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm here with TLO editor Dr David Collingridge. Welcome David, we're going to discuss some highlights from the April issue. Let's start with start, pardon the pun, but TLO in collaboration with The Lancet Weekly has published two important studies and this is looking at radiotherapy for breast cancer. We published these studies online a week ago just before Easter. A pretty impressive job I think these investigators have done. Yes, that's right, Richard. They've done a a very good job here. The START trials are certainly an impressive example of clinical research. The biological question being asked is complex. The stakes are very high. The studies involve sizable logistical challenges. And perhaps more importantly, the two trials were designed to challenge a well-established method of delivering radiotherapy to women with early breast cancer. So to undertake a very large study of this type shows a considerable commitment by the researchers, especially given it addresses a concept that many radiation oncologists are sceptical about. And let's not forget, they've involved 4,500 women in these trials, along with nearly 1,500 patients in an earlier pilot study. So you have to admire the determination of the researchers. Indeed. And just a resume here, this is looking at radiotherapy and the way it's delivered. Radiotherapy is delivered for women with early-stage breast cancer. Can you just clarify the population of women that we're talking about here? Yes, all of the women enrolled in these trials had early-stage disease. So this is T1 through T3A. They had a nodal status of either 0 or 1, and they had no metastases. A majority of the women also had invasive ductal carcinoma and received various adjuvant treatments in addition to the radiotherapy. And this is UK-based research. Can you just briefly summarise the methodology here? Following on from the earlier pilot study done between 1986 and 1998, which showed very favourable results, John Yarnold and colleagues from the Royal Marsden Hospital here in the UK initiated two trials to be run in parallel, investigating whether the number of radiation fractions, the fraction dose and the total dose could be modified from a conventional regimen, which is typically 50 gray given in 25 2 gray fractions. The project, known as the UK Standardisation of Breast Radiotherapy, or START for short, was open to all UK centres that offered radiotherapy for early breast cancer. 17 centres participated in the first trial, START A, and 23 in the second trial, START B. The aim of START A was to precisely estimate a hyperfractionation schedule equivalent to a conventional regimen. So to do this, patients were randomised to either 50 grey in 25 fractions of 2 grey, or to 41.6 grey in 13 fractions of 3.2 grey, or to 39 grey in 13 fractions of 3 grey. START B was a little more pragmatic, and simply investigated randomization of patients to either 50 grey in 25 2 grey fractions or to 40 grey in 15 fractions of 2.67 grey. The endpoints were local regional tumour relapse, late normal tissue effects and quality of life. And what did they find? Well, in Start A, local regional tumour relapse at 5 years was 3.6% in the 50 grey group, 3.5% in the 41.6 grey group and 5.2% in the 39 grey group. The estimated absolute differences in five-year local regional relapse compared with 50 grey was not significantly different in either of the two experimental groups, and the data suggests lower rates of late adverse events after 39 grey. So overall, START A shows a schedule of 41.6 grey over 13 fractions is similar to 50 grey over 25 fractions. In START B, local regional tumour relapse at five years was 3.3% in the 50 grey group and 2.2% in the 40 grey group. Photographic and patient self-assessments suggested lower rates of adverse events in the 40 grey group, which together with the local regional control data led the START trialists to conclude that 40 grey was comparable to 50 grey. Thank you for very carefully explaining those results. That's, that's clear. 
But what about follow-up here, David? Is there simply enough follow-up in the analysis here that we can be sure about the results? Or is longer follow-up needed? Well, that, that's a very important point. It's well recognised that the beneficial effects of radiotherapy on mortality are generally seen after 10 years of follow-up. So while the five-year data presenting START A and B are promising, we do need to wait for the 10-year data for confirmation. However, I think it's very interesting to note that the pilot study now has 10 years of follow-up and the relative effects of the different fractionation schedules in that study remain unchanged from five years. And similarly, data presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December last year by Canadian researchers who are also investigating hypofractionation for treatment of breast cancer showed favourable results after 10 years of follow-up. So a very interesting evidence base is starting to accumulate. So in conclusion, this is clearly showing, if you like, making a case for hypofractionation, fewer doses of radiation which clearly would have some benefits. Do you think there's a case for for even further hyperfractionation? Well, I think it's still a little too early to make a case for a wide-scale change in practice. But the concept is clearly gaining momentum. And if the 10-year data are favourable and confirmed by others, the introduction of a hyperfractionation schedule would have considerable benefits to patients through fewer visits to the clinic and shorter waiting lists, for example. I hate to use another pun, but it seems like START has made a good start, but we need to wait a bit longer before we can be truly sure. Exactly. Thanks very much, David. Moving on to another research article you've got in this month's issue. This is the April issue of the Lancet Oncology, and this is looking at possibly a new treatment option for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. First of all, can you just remind us exactly what non-Hodgkin lymphoma is? Yes, well, there's over 20 different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, the most common types being diffuse, large B-cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma. Follicular lymphoma accounts for about 30% of all newly diagnosed non-Hodgkin lymphomas and is the most common type in Europe and in the USA. But management of follicular lymphoma is not easy because of its potential to relapse and transform into more aggressive histologies. And how is it usually treated? Well, radiotherapy is known to have some benefit, but there are several effective chemotherapy regimens using various combinations of cyclophosphamide, vincristine, prednisolone, doxorubicin and more recently rituximab. However no consensus exists on the optimum chemotherapy regimen although the use of targeted agents against a cell surface antigen called CD20 which is expressed in over 90% of B-cell lymphomas seems to offer the greatest potential for improving current survival rates. And in terms of the current study David what were the objectives here because this is looking if you like at a kind of more novel treatment approach for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Yes, in the current study known as the FLUMIS trial, Pierluigi Zinzani and colleagues from the University of Bologna in Italy treated patients enrolled into a phase 2 trial with fludarabine, mitoxantrone and an yttrium-90 labelled CD20 antibody called ibrutumumab. 61 patients with previously untreated stage 3 or 4 indolent follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma from 13 Italian institutions received 6 cycles of the 3-drug regimen. Patients who had at least a partial response after completion of the SIP cycle were allowed consolidation therapy comprising one further course of yttrium-90 ibrutumumab. Primary endpoints were complete response and hematological toxic effects. Secondary endpoints were overall survival and progression-free survival. And can you just briefly summarise the results here and what you think the implications are of the results? Well, the researchers noted an overall response in 60 of the 61 patients, comprising 43 patients with a complete response and 17 patients with a partial response. 57 patients went on to receive consolidation therapy, and by the end of the entire treatment regimen, 55 of the 57 patients received a complete response. At a median follow-up of 30 months, progression-free survival was estimated to be 76%, and an estimated three-year overall survival was an impressive 100%. 
For tempering these results, I think it's important to note that 36 patients developed a grade 3 or 4 hematological toxic effect and 21 patients needed blood transfusions. And I see, David, you've got a linked reflection and reaction piece. The author here is Davis. How would you interpret the comment? I couldn't quite work out whether it was a positive endorsing comment or not. Well, it it, it certainly is a very positive comment. And the results in this study provide further evidence that targeting CD20 is an effective therapeutic option for treating indolent follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And in the link comment, Andrew Davis from the University of Southampton in the UK draws parallels between the Flumis results and those reported by the Southwest Oncology Group who treated 90 patients with CHOP plus rituximab followed by a different radionuclide labelled anti-CD20 antibody, namely iodine-131 to citumumab. Andrew Davis also comments that the Flumis data support the early results from the first-line indolent trial, or the FIT trial, which assessed response consolidation with an yttrium-90 ibrutumumab after a first-line chemotherapy regimen of the treating oncologist's choice. Now, these various trials and the results being seen throw up new questions, of course, that will need answering before a firm position can be adopted on which chemotherapy regimen is most appropriate. For example, should the optimum initial treatment involve an anthracycline or fludarabine? Or should the CD20 antibody be given in combination with chemotherapy, or as maintenance, or as a sequential agent? But fortunately, these results don't hide the fact that we're now entering a new phase in the treatment of follicular lymphoma in which good patient outcomes are looking ever more likely. Thanks, David, for that. And finally, let's end with a very interesting piece. This is looking at the need for more enrolment of young people, adolescents and young adults, into randomised trials. Why is this population important in terms of trial recruitment? Well, it's been long recognised that patients enrolled into clinical trials do much better than those treated outside of such studies. In addition, trials tailored to specific age groups can substantially improve the quality of care. For example, survival among children treated for liver cancer in the UK has increased from about 10% in the 1960s to more than 60% since the introduction of the SOPAL trials in 1991. But unfortunately, many trials set age restrictions on admission that often, and perhaps inadvertently, limit participation of teenagers and young adults between the ages of 13 and 24 years. Now, new data from the UK National Cancer Research Institute shows that while 56% of children aged 5 to 14 years are entered into trials, just 20% of patients aged 15 to 24 years are recruited. Now, this difference is quite stark and is very similar to data seen in the USA, Italy and Australia. This, This is a world phenomenon. The consequence, of course, is poorer cancer survival rates in teenagers and young adults compared with other age groups. It just seems so odd, doesn't it? Do you know why, historically, this group has, has been ignored? Well, there, there's a number of reasons for this. Inadequate trial design, for example, or failure to open trials for rare cancers in all treatment centres, and a paucity of age-directed information about cancer trials. Jeremy Whelan's keynote comment in this month's issue highlights that trial age entry criteria are often arbitrary and often bisect the age span of teenagers and young adults. Plus, such criteria generally reflect the investigator's background, i.e. adult or paediatric oncology, rather than addressing the actual needs of the patients. So finally, David, do you think there are grounds for optimism that this group, who have been hitherto overlooked, are there grounds for optimism that we're beginning to sort this out? Yes, I I think there are a number of optimistic signs here. And the UK is leading efforts to address these problems and has started to set up teenage cancer inpatient units. There is also a new teenage and young adults clinical studies development group under the auspices of the National Cancer Research Institute. And new service developments are being driven by the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. 
In addition, the UK is fortunate to have a dedicated charity, the Teenage Cancer Trust, that has a high profile in this country and is very active in supporting specialist units for teenagers and young adults. So provided investigators can overcome the divisions between adult and paediatric oncology and all stakeholders from the government downwards continue to fully engage in this challenge, enrolment of 14 to 24-year-olds in clinical trials should start to increase. Many thanks, David. That's David Collinridge, editor of The Lancet Oncology, discussing highlights from the April issue of TLO. Many thanks for listening. See you next month.